Part two, chapter fourteen of Beyond by John Galsworthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part two, chapter fourteen. The human creature has wonderful power of putting up with things. Chip never really believed that Daphne Wing was of the past. A sceptical instinct told her that what Fiorson might honestly mean to do was very different from what he would do under stress of opportunity carefully put within his reach. Since her return, Rosek had begun to come again, very careful not to repeat his mistake, but not deceiving her at all. Though his self-control was as great as Fjordson's was small, she felt she he had not given up his pursuit of her, and would take very good care that Daphne Wing was afforded every chance of being with her husband. But pride never let her allude to the girl. Besides, what good to speak of her? They would both lie. Rosick, because he obviously saw the mistaken line of his first attack. Thjorsen, because his temperament did not permit him to suffer by speaking the truth. Having set herself to endure, she found she must live in the moment, never think of the future, never think much of anything. Fortunately, nothing so conduces to vacuity as a baby. She gave herself up to it with desperation. It was a good baby, silent, somewhat understanding. In watching its face and feeling it warm against her, Jip succeeded daily in getting away into the hypnotic state of mothers and cows that chew the cud. But the baby slept a great deal, and much of its time was claimed by Betty. Those hours, and they were many, Jip found difficult. She had lost interest in dress and household elegance, keeping just enough to satisfy her fastidiousness, Money, too, was scarce under the drain of Thjorsen's irregular requirements. If she read, she began almost at once to brood. She was cut off from the music-room, had not crossed its threshold since her discovery. Aunt Rosamond's efforts to take her into society were fruitless. All the effervescence was out of that, and though her father came, he never stayed long for fear of meeting Thjorsen. In this condition of affairs she turned more and more to her own music, and, one morning, after she had come across some compositions of her girlhood, she made a resolution. That an afternoon she dressed herself with pleasure for the first time for months, and sallied forth into the February frost. Monsieur Eduard Armoust inhabited the ground floor of a house in the Maribyrn Road. He received his pupils in a large back room overlooking a little sooty garden. A balloon by extraction, and of great vitality, he grew old with difficulty having a soft corner in his heart for women, and a passion for novelty, even for new music, that was unappeasable. Any fresh discovery would bring a tear rolling down his mahogany cheeks into his clipped grey beard, the while he played, singing wheezily to elucidate the wondrous novelty, or moved his head up and down as if pumping. When Jip was shown into this well-remembered room, he was seated, his yellow fingers buried in his stiff grey hair, grieving over a pupil who had just gone out. He did not immediately rise, but stared hard at Jip. Ah, he said at last, my little old friend, she has come back, now that is good. Patting her hand, he looked into her face, which had a warmth and brilliance rare to her in these days. Then, making for the mantelpiece, he took therefrom a bunch of palmer violets, evidently brought by his last pupil, and thrust them under her nose. Take them, take them, they were meant for me. Now, how much have you forgotten? Come. 
Seizing her by the elbow, he almost forced her to the piano. Take off your furs, sit down. While Jip was taking off her coat, he fixed on her his prominent brown eyes that rolled easily in their slightly bloodshot whites under squared eyelids and cliffs of brow. She had on what Fjorsen called her hummingbird blouse, dark blue, shot with peacock and old rose, and looked very warm and soft under her fur cap. Monsieur Armoust's stare seemed to drink her in. Yet that state was not unpleasant, having in it only the rather sad yearning of old men who love beauty and know that their time for seeing it is getting short. Play me the carnival, he said. We shall soon see. Jip played. Twice he nodded. Once he tapped his fingers on his teeth and showed her the whites of his eyes, which meant, that will have to be very different. And once he grunted. When she had finished, he sat down beside her, took her hand in his, and, examining the fingers, began, Yes, yes, soon again, spoiling herself, playing for that fiddler. Through sympathique. The backbone, the backbone, we shall improve that. Now, four hours a day for six weeks, and we shall have something again. Chip said softly, I have a baby, Monsieur Armoust. Monsieur Armoust bounded. What? That is a tragedy. Chip shook her head. You like it? A baby? Does it not squall? Very little. Mon Dieu. Well, well, you are still as beautiful as ever. That is something. Now, what can you do with this baby? Could you get rid of it a little? This is serious. This is a talent in danger. A fiddler and a baby. C'est beaucoup, c'est trop. Jip smiled. And Monsieur Harmoust, whose exterior covered much sensibility, stroked her hand. You have grown up, my little friend, he said gravely. Never mind, nothing is wasted, but a baby. And he chirruped his lips. Well, courage, we shall do things yet. Jip turned her head away to hide the quiver of her lips. The scent of latakia tobacco that had soaked into things, and of old books and music, a dark smell like Monsieur Armoust's complexion, the old brown curtains, the sooty little back garden beyond with its cat-runs and its one stunted sumac-tree, the dark brown stare of Monsieur Armus's rolling eyes, brought back that time of happiness when she used to come week after week, full of gaiety and importance, and chatter away, basking in his brusque admiration and in music, all with the glamorous feeling that she was making him happy, and herself happy, and going to play very finely some day. The voice of Monsieur Armoust, softly gruff, as if he knew what she was feeling, increased her emotion. Her breast heaved under the hummingbird blouse, water came into her eyes, and more than ever her lips quivered. He was saying, Come, come, the only thing we cannot cure is age. You were right to come, my child. Music is your proper heir. If things are not all what they ought to be, you shall soon forget. In music, in music, we can get away. After all, my little friend, they cannot take our dreams from us. Not even a wife, not even a husband can do that. Come, we shall have good times yet. And Jip, with a violent effort, threw off that sudden weakness. From those who serve art devotedly, there radiates a kind of glamour. She left Monsieur Armoust that afternoon infected by his passion for music. Poetic justice, on which all homeopathy is founded, was at work to try and cure her life by a dose of what had spoiled it. The music she now gave all the hours she could spare. She went to him twice a week, determining to get on, but uneasy at the expense, for monetary conditions were ever more embarrassed. 
At home, she practised steadily and worked hard at composition. She finished several songs and studies during the spring and summer, and left still more unfinished. Monsieur Armouste was tolerant of these efforts, seemed to know that harsh criticism or disapproval would cut her impulse down, as frost cuts the life of flowers. Besides, there was always something fresh and individual in her things. He asked her one day, What does your husband think of these? Hippon was silent a moment. I don't show them to him. She never had. She instinctively kept back the knowledge that she composed, dreading his ruthlessness when anything grated on his nerves, and knowing that a breath of mockery would wither her belief in herself, a frail enough plant already. The only person beside her master to whom she confided her efforts was, strangely enough, Rosek. But he had surprised her one day, copying out some music, and said at once, I knew I was certain you composed. Ah, do play it to me. I am sure you have talent. The warmth with which she praised that little caprice was surely genuine, and she felt so grateful that she even played him others, and then a song for him to sing. From that day he no longer seemed to her odious. She even began to have for him a certain friendliness, to be a little sorry, watching him pale, trim, and sphinx-like in her drawing-room or garden, getting no nearer to the fulfilment of his desire. He had never again made love to her, but she knew that, at the least sign, he would. His face and his invincible patience made him pathetic to her. Women such as Jip cannot actively dislike those who admire them greatly. She consulted him about Fjolson's debts. There were hundreds of pounds owing, it seemed, and in addition much to Rosek himself. The thought of these debts weighed unbearably on her. Why did he, how did he get into debt like this? What became of the money he earned? His fees this summer were good enough. There was such a feeling of degradation about debt. It was somehow so underbred to owe money to all sorts of people. Was it on that girl, on other women, that he spent it all? Or was it simply that his nature had holes in every pocket? Watching Fjorsen closely that spring and early summer, she was conscious of a change, a sort of loosening, something in him that had given way, as when, in winding a watch, the key turns on and on, the ratchet being broken. Yet he was certainly working hard, perhaps harder than ever. She would hear him across the garden going over and over a passage, as if he never would be satisfied. But his playing seemed to her to have lost its fire and sweep, to be stale and as if disillusioned. It was all as though he had said to himself, What's the use? In his face, too, there was a change. She knew, she was certain that he was drinking secretly. Was it his failure with her? Was it the girl? Was it simply heredity from a hard-drinking ancestry? Jip never faced these questions. To face them would mean useless discussion, useless submission that she could not love him, useless asseveration from him about the girl, which she would not believe, useless denials of all sorts, hopeless. He was very irritable and seemed especially to resent her music lessons, alluding to them with a sort of sneering impatience. He felt that he despised them as amateurish and secretly resented it. He was often impatient, too, of the time she gave to the baby. His own conduct with the little creature was like what the rest of him. He would go to the nursery, watch to bet his alarm, and take up the baby, be charming with it for about ten minutes, 
then suddenly dump it back into its cradle, stare at it gloomily, or utter a laugh, and go out. Sometimes he would come up when Jip was there, and after watching her a little in silence, almost drag her away. Suffering always from the guilty consciousness of having no love for him, and even more and more from her sense that, instead of saving him, she was, as it were, pushing him downhill, ironical nemesis for vanity, Jip was ever more and more compliant to his whims, trying to make up. But this compliance, when all the time she felt further and further away, was straining her to breaking point. Hers was a nature that goes on passively enduring till something snaps. After that, no more. Those months of spring and summer were like a long spell of drought, when moisture gathers far away, coming nearer, nearer, till at last the deluge bursts and sweeps the garden. End of part two, chapter fourteen.